we continue in our study of Luke, and we're going to talk this morning about the family tree, the physical human family tree that led up to Jesus, and there's a lot to learn from that. Uh, but instead of starting at Luke, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 11, because Isaiah, or as my English um, preaching professor would say, Isaiah, um, prophesied many times about Jesus. Oh. <laughs> Please silence your devices. <laughs> okay. All right. Isaiah prophesied many times about Jesus, and one of those prophecies was this. In Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. One of many messianic prophecies from Isaiah. Briefly, this prophecy is telling us that it would seem as though the Lord's promise that there would be a descendant of David always on the throne had failed. The family tree of Jesse, who was King David's father, would appear to have been cut down. But as some of us have experienced, a stump can often grow back into a tree. Isaiah was saying that a branch would still come out of the apparently dead tree of Jesse. In two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, the family tree of Jesus is recorded. Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus and traces all the way back to Abraham, to whom the covenant was given that God would bless the entire earth through Abraham. Matthew showed that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham and also a descendant of David, and Luke records the genealogy, but his is a little bit different. And instead of starting with Abraham and going forward to Jesus, as Matthew did, Luke starts with Jesus and goes backward all the way to Adam. In fact, all the way to God. And I am going to read this in a moment. Many of you may be thinking, why would someone read this passage out loud as part of a sermon? Because it's simply a listing of a bunch of names. And I'll probably pronounce a good half of them wrong. Well, there's a good reason why we would do that. First off, it's in the Bible, and therefore we conclude that in such a passage as this, there must be definitely something that is edifying in some way to the believer. And you can imagine, perhaps, that even as I was preparing to, pre to preach this message from this passage, that in the beginning stage, I myself wondered what, what would come of this, but as always ends up being the case, there's actually much here to encourage us as we look into the genealogy Luke provides. So we have a big idea and a few points this morning for us to sort out. And the big idea is that there is much to encourage the believer in the genealogy of Jesus. 
And three things that may encourage us in this passage are, number one, that genealogies are actual historical evidence. Number two, that God uses very imperfect people. And number three, that God's salvation is perfectly planned and executed. And so let us look at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through, 28, or through 38, says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melii, these are easy for me to say, right? The son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arne, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Jeth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I challenge all of you to read this to your families this afternoon. <laughs> all right. So again, our big idea here is we could read that and say, what was that? Just a bunch of names. There is actually much to encourage us as believers in this genealogy. Again, I'm going to go through these. That uh, they contain historical evidence uh, that God uses imperfect people and that God's salvation is perfectly planned and executed. Now, if you haven't spent very much time at all reading things like systematic theologies or church history or something on church ethics, you've probably come across the name of Karl Barth. Karl Barth lived from 1886 to 1968. He was a Swiss Reformed theologian, and Barth is best known for his Epistle to the Romans, uh, which was a commentary he did on the Book of Romans, also, his involvement in the confessing, the confessing Church, and especially his unfinished multi-volume theological summa called Church Dogmatics. Barth's influence expanded well beyond the academic realm, all the way into mainstream culture, leading him to be featured on the cover of Time magazine in April 1962. So Barth is considered very influential. He was inspiration to many uh, people, some of the names you would recognize like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
One of his inspirations was Karl Barth. And so Karl Barth had a great impact on church ethics, on other important areas of Christian faith. And people wanted to know what Barth was thinking. He was in his time, as some of us regard today, John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul. He was very intellectual, and yet he could communicate to even people who were not as educated as he was. So when Karl Barth was once visiting an American university, many people came because they wanted to ask him questions. So just as many Christian conferences today, they have these Q&A sessions, right? Question and answers. And people will line up to ask their favorite preachers questions. And this is exactly what happened with Karl Barth when he visited the U.S., So one student got his golden opportunity to ask a question of Karl Barth, and the question was a great question. And the answer Barth gave was, in my opinion, simply powerful. I don't know about you, but I have sometimes imagined if I had a conversation with some person who was at the top of their field, what would I ask them? And if you had one great shot at a question to ask someone you greatly admired, what would it be? I've had many mock conversations with great people in my mind. What would I ask if I could ask one question of Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon or even the governor or the president? How would I use my one shot to ask a question? So some students had this opportunity with Karl Barth, and one student asked a question that got a startling response. The question the student asked Dr. Barth was this, Dr. Barth, what is the most profound thing you have ever learned in your study of theology? Great question, right? Dr. Barth, what is the most profound thing you have ever learned in your study of theology? Barth's answer stunned me. I think you will find it very wonderful. I think that his answer will cause most of you a profound moment when you hear what Barth found to be the most profound thing he had ever learned in his study of theology. And I'm going to give you his answer, but you'll have to listen to the rest of the sermon first. His answer, I believe, can sum up for us what a wonderful truths are found throughout Scripture And in particular, our passage of study today, this little passage with all these names, this list of people who are somehow in the lineage of Jesus. I want to mention quickly that Luke tells us Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. So this is the first part of the genealogy. He talks about this age. He was about 30. Now, students of the Bible will be aware that the age of 30 was often an age when important biblical figures really began their ministry or their mission. Joseph is an example of this. In Genesis 41, we see it says Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. In Numbers chapter 4, you can find that priests were to be between the ages of 30 and 50. That is the act of serving priests in the temple. David became king at age 30. In 2 Samuel 5.4, it says David was 30 years old when he began to reign and reigned for 40 years. Ezekiel was also 30 when his ministry began. Ezekiel 1.1 in the 30th year in the fourth month. On the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles of the Shebarcanal, 
canal or heaven. I get all those names now. I'm not talking, right? Okay. The heavens were open. I saw visions of God. So, so the age of 30 throughout Scripture is this important age. It is young enough to still have some strength and vigor, old enough to have some life experience. I can't imagine being a pastor personally when I was 20. I still had a lot to learn, and I still have a lot to learn. So reminder of that, that big idea we have, that there's a lot to encourage the believer in this genealogy of Jesus. And the first point is that genealogies have actual historical evidence. So the first point is going to be a little more brief. I debated getting into a lot of very technical things about why Matthew and Luke had different genealogies, but frankly, a lot of it is kind of in the weeds kind of stuff that many of us would be a little bit bored with. So, um, But let us say at least that Matthew and Luke had different concerns, uh, different points they were trying to make. Neither of these genealogies included every single descendant of Adam who was in the line leading up to Jesus. They both highlight certain people in the line, but not the same people. Now, the use of language for these authors when they say the son of is not to be taken in the same literal sense as we would today. For example, my great-great-grandfather was the Reverend Colbine Hovde, and my, great -gran or my grandfather was Valdemar Hovde, and my father is Daryl. We would not say Jason, son of Colbine. We don't say it that way. But sometimes it was done that way in biblical historical accounts. So in many historical accounts, the important thing is not to give every single name, but to establish a line of heredity. So while it may be important to our families to know each person in the line to others, that might not seem as important. So if someone were someday telling the stories of my daughters, they may decide I'm not important to the story, and they may skip me altogether. That, maybe that seems rude, but if if uh, we were to record every single person in a long family line, it would take a lot more time and paper to do so. So both Luke and Matthew chose certain people that they found significant in the line of Jesus. Today, many people love to learn about their family history. In fact, there's, you can go online and pay for family history, family trees, and all of that. People want to know, is there someone in my lineage who was a king or a president or a famous scientist or something like that? And certainly it's understandable that people learning about Jesus would want to know something about his family history as well. But Paul warns us not to get too carried away and become obsessive with genealogies. He cautioned the pastor, Timothy, to be wary of people who taught bad doctrines and who were obsessed with myths and endless genealogies. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And to the other pastor that the pastor epistle, pastoral epistles were written to, Titus, he gave a similar warning in Titus 3.9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I can't imagine Paul would have written this 
if genealogies had not been a source of distraction for some in the church. He wouldn't write it just randomly. It must have been a problem. Today, we see many other distractions from the true gospel. Many churches or pastors have a very narrow theme of doctrine that they spend almost all their time on and thinking and teaching about. And for some, it's the end times. For some, it's Israel. For some, it's some charismatic experiences. But any church or pastor who concentrates very heavily on one pet topic and does not teach the whole counsel of God will usually end up off track and wacky, right? So in Paul's day, clearly genealogies were one of those things that people spent a lot of time discussing but had little value. In fact, Paul says, no value. They are unprofitable and worthless. So while many scholars have done a lot of important research to understand the genealogies of the Gospels, we should be careful not to engage in a lot of arguing or speculation for that would be unfruitful. Instead, we should see what we can learn from these accounts that has value in building up our faith. And one of those things is that these accounts help us to have some historical certainty about certain factors in Jesus' parentage. When the Gospels were written, it would be easy for people at that time to have checked out these genealogies to see if they were true. Just as if you were checking my lineage, perhaps you could say it's not important who his father or grandfather is, although it's important to me, you might instead say he came from the line of Colbyn Hovde. You would not be wrong to say so. And even if you did skip a couple generations, you would still be providing some historical evidence of my lineage. The genealogy of Jesus proves that he has a legal right to David's throne. So again, there's much here to encourage the believer in the genealogy of Jesus. So they give us historical evidence. That's one very important thing. Secondly, God uses very imperfect people. God uses very imperfect people. It's true. This point should be a great relief to us and a great encouragement as well. Working our way back with Luke, some names pop out to those who have some Old Testament knowledge. You'll recognize some of them. There are many names here, and I'm only going to select some for us to consider. But the first is Zerubbabel. He was one of the men who led out of the Babylonian exiles and brought them back to Judah. And you can read about him in Nehemiah and Ezra. He was one of the administrators who helped rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And you can see that in Ezra 5.2, it says Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Zerubbabel is also the one that's spoken of in a, in a half a verse that you hear all the time, uh, but you often don't hear the first half of the verse, but here it is in Zechariah. He, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What is he talking about? He's talking about how Zerubbabel helped to rebuild the temple. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. And uh, it goes on from there. So how did Zerubbabel accomplish the rebuilding of the temple? Was it in his own strength? Or by his political power? No, by the Spirit of God. So in the line of Jesus is a man who, like Jesus, led people out of captivity and revered and built up the house of God and who was also filled with the Spirit of God. Now, many names in the genealogy Luke gives are familiar names, but probably not the person you're thinking associated with that name. Just like today, families recycled a lot of names, right? So for example, as you're reading in Luke, this, this part of the genealogy, you'll see names like Joshua, Levi, and other names that are not necessarily the one you're thinking of when, you, when you're thinking of those names. Just remember, there's reused names there too. Now if we move down to verse 31, we see some familiar names that are the ones we probably think of. Nathan was the son of David and Bathsheba, a brother to Solomon. You may have thought of another Nathan, the prophet Nathan who rebuked David and brought that tender response of repentance that's beautifully recorded in Psalm 51. Isn't it interesting that David later named one of his sons after the prophet who cared enough to rebuke him soundly? And of course, David himself is in this lineage. Certainly, David had many wonderful qualities. God called him a man after his own heart. And yet, he was an adulterer, a murderer, a man of passion whose passions got him and his entire family into a lot of trouble. David himself was the great-great-grandson grandson of a guy named Boaz. Boaz was the kinsman-redeemer of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite whose loyalty and devotion to her Jewish mother-in-law brought the attention of Boaz on her, and Boaz redeemed Ruth and married her and provided for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And after Boaz and Ruth were married, Ruth had a son. His name was Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David a kinsman redeemer in the line of the kinsman redeemer. And I know someone who wrote a book on that recently, if you're interested. Now, Ruth and Boaz are given very nice stories in Scripture, so we're pleased, aren't we, when we find out they're in the line and the lineage of Jesus. But what about a prostitute? Right after Boaz, Luke places Salah, who was Salah. The only thing we know about him is that he was married to Rahab. Matthew records that in his genealogy, though he uses a variation of the name, Salmon, and Matthew even includes Rahab's name to make sure everyone knows exactly who he's talking about. Who was Rahab? But a worldly woman who was saved by faith alone. Her faith not only saved her and her family, but also she was given further grace by being in the line of Jesus. 
To mention a few more of the names, we see Aminadab, who was the head of the tribe of Judah during the time of wandering in the desert. We see Judah, who took the law into his own hands. We see Jacob, who cheated his brother. We see Isaac and Abraham. We see Noah, and all the way back to Adam. And now Luke ends this with Adam, the son of God. And indeed, Adam was a son of God, as all people are children of God in the sense of his being our creator. But Adam is not son of God in the same way Jesus is son of God. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the son of God from eternity past. He was not created as Adam was, but was there at the creation. And as you consider many of these characters in the line of Jesus, consider who many people how many of these people in this list, people would say, they can't serve that position because of their failures and their sins. And yet God used them in his eternal plan of salvation. And this should be of great encouragement to us. If we are in Christ, it is because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He had this plan of salvation planned out. All of these people, who would have a role, and by the way, many more, as I mentioned earlier, it's not like Luke listed every single person in the whole line. He would have had a book just for that. But all of the people along that line, who knows what other stories there were. God had this plan of salvation completely planned out. All of these people who would have a role, including prostitutes and foreigners and murderers and usurpers, all kinds of people with all kinds of vile sin, and yet they were chosen to be part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Every one of us who has faith in Jesus should marvel no less at the fact that these people were in the line of Jesus than we should marvel that to find out that if we are in him, we're in his line as well. The same God who planned the salvation guaranteed that the salvation would have effect on those who were called and chosen. From Adam, our first father, sin has been the curse of the human race. We are all born with it as a sin nature. It's in our very nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And, but where Adam failed in obedience, Jesus succeeded. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul writes this, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then in verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam's sin brought death to all his ancestors, that is, every human. But Christ makes alive even those who were dead in sin. Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, we look at this genealogy and we find much to encourage us. Historical evidence. The fact that God used very imperfect people 
and the fact that God's salvation is perfectly planned and executed. That's an important one. God's salvation was perfectly planned and executed. He has seen to it that every one of those he chose will be saved. Some theologians call this the golden chain, Romans 8.30. Those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Since God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, nothing could have stopped it. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. What love, what mercy that God has planned to save those of us who are his and his plans are incorruptible. Nothing can stop one from being saved who God has predestined to salvation. What love. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is love. 1 John 4, 7 through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here we are, those who have faith in Christ. Here we are enjoying the love of God. This love that determined in advance that we would be saved and what a beautiful salvation this is. We can be sure this is true because the Bible is God's word and the Bible teaches these truths. So do not fear, brothers and sisters. Is your soul in doubt about your salvation in God? What keeps you from having the assurance of your salvation? It can be a time away from his word. It could be a time away from his church. It could be a time away from the fellowship of the saints. It can be allowing the troubles of the world to distract you from the beautiful truth of God's word. Why should you doubt if your salvation will be sure? If you are in Christ, he intercedes for you constantly. None of those who are his are lost. And Hebrews 7 tells us that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you are in Christ, he prays for you and intercedes for you with the Father constantly, all the time. 
And Christ is the only way to salvation. You will find it in no one else. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believer, if you can understand predestination and election, you will find great comfort in this. The reformers boldly declared that the way to become more and more sure of your salvation was to understand the doctrine of election. The Church of England may not be what it used to be, but in their 39 articles written in the 1570s, they said this, as the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, as because it doth fervently kindle their love toward God. Now, I realize that's not in modern English. But here's what it's saying. If you consider predestination and election, you will find it to be a sweet and pleasant and unspeakable comfort to you if you are a godly person. This doctrine will drive you to fight the fight against sin and the flesh, and it will draw you to think very highly of God. And this is very important. It will confirm and establish your faith and cause your love for him to be like fire. We love him because he first loved us. How can we understand the love of God fully? Even Paul, the great apostle and theologian, marveled at these truths. In Romans 11, he said, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I return now to the question asked of Professor Karl Barth. Dr. Barth, what is the most profound thing you have ever learned in your study of theology? Do you want to know the answer? Do you? Wyatt, do you want to know? Tim, do you want to know? Barry, you want to know? The other Tim? You people on YouTube, do you want to know? I think they said yes. Rich, you want to know? You note-takers better get your pens ready because this won't be on the screen. Indeed, we all would like to know what the esteemed professor said the most profound thing he ever learned in his study of theology was. In fact, since I read this, I've thought more and more about it, and it is truly profound. You could think about Barth's answer every day for the rest of your life, and it would still be profound. Dr. Barth, what is the most profound thing you have ever learned in your study of theology? And after being asked the question, Barth paused for a moment and answered, Jesus loves me, this I know. 
for the Bible tells me so. Is this profound to you? You see, nothing is more profound than what is profoundly simple. How do we fathom the love of Christ? How do we know it to be true? The Bible tells us so. Do you know this truth? Have you searched the scriptures to find it out? The love of God personified in Jesus is real because the Bible tells us so. The Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. The Bible is his word, and it tells us good news. And so when we look at even a passage that may on first glance look very boring, oh, it's just a bunch of names and a list of genealogy, but there's much to encourage us there, isn't there? For one thing, there's the historical evidence that helps us to know Jesus had a historical lineage that we can go and check out. Number two, that God uses very imperfect people, and you ought to all say, thank goodness for that. And number three, that God's salvation is perfectly planned and executed. So if your own assurance in your salvation is wavering, may I suggest, as if I were a doctor offering a prescription, that you spend time reading God's word. Daily reading and daily spending time reflecting on these great truths. And this is why even a passage that at first glance may seem like some boring family tree reveals to us something about that profound statement, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me that Jesus revealed his love in coming to be born of a woman. The plan included all along a number of people who would be the ancestors of Joseph and Mary, and many of them were not nice people. But are you and I such nice people? Do we deserve his grace and mercy any more than any of them? No, we all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. Yet in Christ, all who were chosen by him will be given the gift of God, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So read these doctrines and believe them and you will be more than conquerors. Romans 8, 37 to 39 says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this profound and simple truth, Lord. As much as we want to know you better, Lord, and we want to know the doctrines and we want to understand how your salvation works out, Lord, let us never forget that there is a simple truth, a profound truth that Karl Barth nailed when he answered that question. And we need to remember that simple truth as well, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Lord, we thank you for this gift. I pray.